Welcome back to the Extension Experience Podcast. I'm Dana Zook. This week, I am joined by Dr. Dwayne Elmore, Professor, Wildlife Extension Specialist, and Bullenbach Chair in Wildlife Biology at Oklahoma State University's Department of Resource Ecology and Management. It's a long title. I hope yeah. I got it all right, Dwayne. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Elmore's focuses revolve around wild turkey, northern bobwhite scaled quail. Yes. That's how we say that. Mm-hmm. I had not heard of that before. And the greater prairie chicken. So you said that that's your research, mostly your research yeah, focus. Yeah, mostly game birds for research. But we know Dwayne as our wildlife extension specialist, so he gets to do lots and lots of different stuff. You also focus on invasive plants, nuisance animals, which we'll hear from Dwayne in a few weeks on that, Um, fire as a management tool, and many other wildlife species, such as deer. And I assume that that's a big topic in Oklahoma. That's what a lot of people call about. They want to know how to manage white-tailed deer. Sometimes to have more of them, sometimes to have less of them, You know, especially if they're having crop issues. Right, right. So both sides of the story. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So thank you for allowing me to come to your office. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to Oklahoma State because you're not a native to Oklahoma. No, I grew okay. up in Tennessee and okay. uh, went to three different land grants. So I've been land grant system a long time. That's okay. something really important to me. The University of Tennessee, Mississippi State University, and then eventually Utah State University. And Oklahoma is very appealing to me because growing up in the East, but spending a lot of time in the West, mm-hmm. it's the great crossroads of the country. So okay. a lot of different peoples and and plants and animals kind of converge in this center of the continent. And so I love it. I mean, where else can you have alligators and bighorn sheep in the same state? Right, right. How many alligators actually are here? Yeah, just a couple Just hundred. a few. <laughs> Down in the southeast. One, yeah, most, mostly McKern County. That's mm-hmm. wild. I know. People have told me that, and I kind of thought that they were kind of pulling my leg no, a little bit, it's, but it's for real. We live in a very diverse state. Yeah. I Coming from Nebraska, I kind of feel like it's just, it's not the Midwest. It's not the South. It's not the West. No, it's a great plains. Yeah, it's wild. So I was going to ask you, how how is it from a wildlife perspective? So, you know, how does Oklahoma stand out? And so kind of answered that. Yeah, a lot of diversity here, uh, not just in the species that occur here all year, but a lot of uh, birds pass through Oklahoma, you know, going, and it's happening right, you know, right now speak, in the spring. Lots mm-hmm. of things are coming back, going heading north. Right. I've been to Utah. Mm-hmm. That's quite a bit different from yeah. Oklahoma. Lots of public lands, right? Yeah. And so what did you do your research on there? Uh, I worked on um, primarily Utah prairie dog, which is okay. a very controversial species right. it causes a lot of damage to ag producers okay. and it's uh, on the threatened it's threatened under okay. the ESA so okay. yeah you can imagine there's a lot of conflict and controversy mm-hmm. about that but it was good training for what I do now right uh, you know dealing with different diverse stakeholders with different ideas and different coming from different backgrounds and yeah cool cool I've I've been there uh, a couple times just as far as taking in all the sites and mm-hmm. stuff like that it's, yeah, it's, it's a really state. it's really cool very yes. unique so let's dive right in we're gonna focus on deer management okay. and some people may think well deer that's kind of a strange topic you know in the spring but I think you know this is a, a year-long kind of management system I would assume what I want to talk about is what landowners and hunters can do now to prepare for the off season to make hunting a more more fruitful type situation right. for people. But before we get into it, I want to put a disclaimer out there. I personally shot and harvested one deer in my life about 15 years ago uh, while I was in college. 
I haven't hunted since then. Uh, besides deer also being a ruminant animal, I that's all I know mm-hmm. about deer. Very little. So <laughs> just so the listeners well, know that. I'm glad that you know they're a ruminant. And they are. Yeah. You know, one of the big differences between white-tailed deer and cattle, for example, mm-hmm. is cattle are you know what we call roughage feeders. They take in huge volumes of mm-hmm. very low quality, generally speaking, low quality forage, right. grasses primarily. Yeah. Deer do not eat grass to any great extent okay the exception to that is in the winter when food availability is really really low okay. and they're hitting your wheat fields right that time of year they are eating grass but the bulk of the time they're eating uh highly high high quality but limited amounts of forage so they're 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 a selective what we call a concentrate selective feeder and that okay. has really important implica- implications about when you think about deer foods and how you manage the landscape for deer okay so kind of is it similar so i think of goats as kind of browsers exactly. a little bit like that a lot of overlap between the diet of goat and white-tailed deer okay. and very little overlap between the diet of white-tailed deer and cattle okay yeah i could think i just think of kind of the structure of those two animals mm-hmm. Uh, like the mouth structure. Exactly. And so that's what I would think of why they do that. Yeah. 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 Deer have, you know, like a prehensile tongue. And, right. And, and very small um, um, a mouth part so that they can take just those choice parts of the plant. Yeah. Cattle are not so good about no, that. No, no, they just, they try to select, right. but it's more volume there. Okay. So I just wanted to let people know, I don't know a lot, but it's so interesting to me. All of, this is a big um, part of our economy, you mm-hmm. know, in it Oklahoma. Yep. So let's first talk about generally improving the habitat for deer. Okay. Um, if we're thinking about this time of year, let's just start up by talking about the amount of acres mm-hmm. and, and kind of how we should think about that. If I have an acreage outside of Stillwater, is that good for, that's probably not good for hunting, obviously, but you can view a lot of wildlife doing that. But from you know there's there's a big range so talk a little bit about that yeah well uh, i mean deer have pretty big home ranges and it's it's variable depending on the quality of the habitat you know and the time of the year certain times of the year they may mostly just be spending the bulk of their time on 10 or 20 acres other times of the year they might be ranging uh several miles especially during the, the breeding season so it varies seasonally it varies with habitat quality but most landowners don't own or control enough land to fully encapsulate a deer's home range and certainly not a population of mm-hmm. a bunch of animals that doesn't mean that you can't have good hunting on 20 acres you can mm-hmm. but you're relying on your neighbors right to be providing a lot of the habitat yeah so from a hunting standpoint small acreages can be really productive but if you're really thinking about managing deer the bigger the better mm-hmm. and, and certainly if you have less than a thousand acres there are a lot of limitations from a management standpoint. That doesn't mean you shouldn't manage for deer, mm-hmm. but you have to have realistic expectations about what you can actually control. Well, that's a really good point. Um, so even just all other kinds of wildlife, probably that applies that too as well. I mean, yeah. of course, quail may not be as wide ranging or anything like that, but you've got to have some expectations about how many, right. how many you can see or hunt in, exactly. in that area. Tell us a little bit about the species, so the plant species that you kind of want to develop, some um, mm-hmm. things that are naturally growing in, in your land area for deer. So as I mentioned, grasses are a pretty minor uh, component okay. of deer diet, ex- you know, with the exception of kind of late winter. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot to do with just the lack of other foods. Um, most of the year, what deer are looking for are forbs. These are herbaceous broadleaf plants. So think ragweed, croton, sunflower. It could be exotic 
cultivated plants like alfalfa mm -hmm. or soybeans. Those are all what we call forbs. They're non-grasses and they're non-woodies. Um, that's the bulk of their diet, about 70 or 80%. And then in the wintertime, they do use a lot of vines and a low-growing woody plant. So they'll okay. browse the tips off of things like dogwood or uh, redbud, and they eat a lot of vine, things like uh, poison ivy, grape vines, okay. green briar, all those things. Oh, those, some of those things that are up. bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they love vines. So this is... This should automatically be cueing a landowner up to think about their spraying activities because those are plants that are often sprayed, mm -hmm. especially in ag-dominated landscapes. And so, you know, what you do with your herbicide program throughout the summer has huge implications to the amount of deer that you can actually carry on your property across the year. Okay, so I'm I'm hearing a variety, a definite variety yes. of plant species. They have a broad, them. broad diet, but it's generally plants that are uh, high in protein. Okay, and things like greenbrier is a great example. You know, it has 25 to 30 percent crude protein all through the winter. Yeah, that is a highly valuable plant to a white-tailed deer. Right. Okay, so. I've read, and I think you've been on SunUp talking about trees mm -hmm. for deer, um, not only the type of tree, but maybe cutting trees in a way to develop more habitat. Tell right. us a little bit about that. And you notice I didn't mention acorns as a food source. Okay. They do relish acorns when they're available. The problem is they're almost never available. Okay. <laughs> they're, they're only really available a couple of months a year. Okay. In some years we have mast crop failures. Right. So some, in some years, in some places, there aren't any acorns, period. So during the brief time when people are out hunting, yeah, deer are keyed in on acorns, and that's a good place to hang a deer stand. But for most of the year, it's an irrelevant food source. Okay. And in fact, those trees are shading out understory vegetation that deer eat the other 10 months of the year. Okay. So we're not talking about eliminating all your trees, but if you can selectively remove some trees in a forest to let sunlight hit the forest floor, you can dramatically increase the amount of food and the carrying capacity for deer. Okay. So talk about this dreaded eastern red cedar that we have. Not the dreaded yeah. by everybody, but do deer like it? They will use it for bedding cover. Okay. But they'll use almost anything for bedding cover. Okay. I would certainly not save red cedar for that purpose because deer will bed in switchgrass. They'll bed in sumac thickets. They'll bed in greenbrier thickets. Any dense cover works, and some of that dense cover also provides food. So I'd much rather have a thicket of greenbrier that deer can browse mm -hmm. and hide in than a patch of eastern red cedar, which provides absolutely zero food value and it's shading out any other potential vegetation. So as a general rule, red cedar is poor for white-tailed deer okay. and for a lot of other wildlife species that people are trying to manage for. Right, yeah. we just, I mentioned that just because it is such a huge mm -hmm. management issue yeah. and they spread so badly, they do. but that is a good future topic. Um, okay, so there's a good resource, um, Whitetail Deer Habitat Evaluation and Management mm -hmm. Guide. That's that's kind of good to evaluate kind of what, what your property offers to deer. Is yeah, that and what the limiting factors are. If okay. you can go through there and score your property and identify, oh, I'm deficient in bedding cover or I'm deficient okay. in uh, food resources during the summer, and that can help a landowner decide what management actions to take. Okay, and so we'll have a link to that fact sheet um, in the show notes, so if anybody's interested in that. So a lot of people own land solely for the use of hunting, but a lot of people also 
own it and manage it with cattle. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that, um, blending those two enterprises and how cattle can complement uh, yeah. a deer enterprise. Yeah, the two work together really well because, as I mentioned earlier, deer and cattle don't have a lot of diet overlap. The only time where they start to really overlap is if stocking rate is really high mm-hmm. on cattle and cattle are being forced to consume, you know, plants they might not right. uh, always go for. And then, of course, in the late winter, if someone has their livestock on a wheat field at the time of year where, where deer food availability mm-hmm. is low, there might be some conflict during that period. Okay. But for the most of the year, if you have cattle stocked appropriately mm-hmm. at moderate stocking rates, you're not going to have a lot of conflict. In fact, uh, having some cattle uh, grazing in a grass-dominated pasture actually can increase deer food availability because it creates canopy gaps in the grass where you might get some forbs. Okay. So you might actually, depending on the stocking rate, you might actually increase food availability for white-tailed deer under moderate stocking density. Okay. And so so just from the cattle thing, what if we're haying? Okay. No. I, I know of kind of a, a time in the year where we should not hay. Uh, maybe a meadow or a native grass field. If we're thinking about that, what mm-hmm. um, what's the guidelines as far as that goes? So, if it's a native pasture, we generally recommend folks look at the first week or two of July as mm-hmm. the period to hay. You know, the general recommendation is not to hay native pastures more than once a year. Right, I agree. Um, and the if you wait till July, you're kind of optimizing forage quality and quantity. If if you do it earlier, you don't have a lot of quantity. If you do it later, the quality starts to decline. And it works out pretty good for wildlife to wait till that first or second week of July because at that period, most deer fawns are up mobile mm-hmm. and so they can escape. Yeah. Uh, most, uh, you know, a lot of ground nesting birds have completed their clutch so those birds can escape the equipment. So you're not going to have as much direct impact mm-hmm. by waiting till July versus in June. You know, if you've ever hayed in June, you hit deer fawns. Right. You run over rabbit nests. Oh I my mean, goodness, we, yes. It's just inevitable. Mm-hmm. And from a native grass standpoint, it's not the optimum time either. Mm-hmm. And if you're talking about like, you know, uh, Bermuda pastures where you might be able to get multiple hay mm-hmm. crops a year, um, it's going to be much harder to avoid right. wildlife. However, Bermuda, for most wildlife, is not good habitat, so we don't typically don't see deer fawning. Mm-hmm. They don't, they're not dropping fawns in Bermuda pastures. Well, and it's shorter. Right. There's not a lot of places to hide, that yeah. sort of thing. So there's not as much direct impact in a Bermuda pasture or a fescue pasture, for that matter. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're speaking my language from cattle kind of nutrition. Mm-hmm. Like, we want quality and quantity um, kind of balance there. And so yeah. I agree. Best time. So let's... Get good if we're gonna do if we're gonna hay at all native grass. I think there's better ways to harvest native grass mm-hmm. than haying. But if we do that, let's let's balance all the good things, right? right. Okay. So great, great topics there. Um, anything that I left out, Dwayne, that you can think of as managing habitat, you know, now going forward. Well, I would just say it can be really daunting for somebody to start managing white-tailed deer on their property, and there's a lot of folks out there that can help them. So mm-hmm. you know, they can call me. Uh, they can call Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of private land biologists that would be happy to assist. So don't feel like you have to go on on your own. And the final thing, there's kind of three components of deer management. And we've really talked more about nutrition, mm-hmm. uh, which is 
an important one. Right. There's also managing age, which would be through harvest. Yeah. And that's a really broad topic, but but that matters. And then there's genetics. Right. And that's the one that we really don't have control over. In, right. In, in an open population where deer are all over the landscape, you know, that's the one that landowners have little to no control over. And so we really need to focus on the age of the animal through harvest and then mm-hmm. the nutrition. Yeah. So, okay. So, so jumping into that, let's talk about that. Um, from a person that don't, doesn't know much about it, I assume that we're trying to develop a, a, a larger deer, you know, maybe mm-hmm. hopefully with a larger antlers. That's what right? most people want. Okay. <laughs> That's what we want. Okay. And, and, and then attracting them. So since we, maybe we don't have a huge land area, so we're wanting to attract them mm-hmm. to come through our property or that sort of thing. So what are some things we can do? And, and I'm thinking food plots, I'm thinking feeders maybe. I mean, mm-hmm. what are some of those things that we can attract them to come through? I don't know if we're training them or whatever, attracting them to our property yeah, during, to, concentrate to come during that fall. So we're right. moved through the summer and now we're, you know, maybe late summer. Food plots certainly can concentrate wildlife. Okay. On a per acre basis, it's a costly practice. Okay. Much more costly than saying doing a prescribed fire. But if you right. only own 50 acres, you're pretty limited mm-hmm. in what you can do. I mean, you, you should still try to improve the habitat for deer, but... Um, but having a one acre or two acre food plot will attract animals. Mm-hmm. It, w- it will definitely concentrate them. So if your primary goal is to make it easier to see and harvest deer, mm-hmm. food plots certainly work, as can feeders. Now, there are some drawbacks. Cost is a big one. Right. They're expensive. Um, often we're droughty and it's hard to grow food plots. They yeah. fail. Because you're, you're planting in like August, right? It depends. it depends on where you're. When, okay. Yeah. We can do spring or fall. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And feeders, one of the drawbacks to them, um, there's some expense, but one of the potential issues is disease issues, uh, especially right. like with aflatoxins. Uh-huh. And uh, that's a, a real concern, particularly with wild turkey. So if you also care about wild turkey, right. you need to think about the grain you're using, the quality of the grain, mm-hmm. keeping it dry, all those things. And we have a fact sheet on this if anybody right. wants to know about reducing aflatoxin mm-hmm. risk, but it's real. Mm-hmm. And so those are some things to consider. There's trade-offs, but there's no doubt that feeders and food plots do attract wildlife. Okay. Now, are you going to put enough of them out on the landscape that you actually increase the size of a deer's antlers? In theory, you could do that, okay. but in pra- practice, very seldom is that happening. We're mostly just attracting animals. If you want larger antlered deer, okay. you need to think about nutrition across the entire spectrum of the deer's life okay. and you also have to let that buck age a little bit right because, so we're getting into age so talk a yeah. little bit about that the age and the selective hunting is that what we're yeah kind of referring if, to it, those types of things and i'm not saying that you have to care about large antler deer some people just want to harvest deer right for the freezer and uh-huh. if that if that's your goal then you know you don't need to wait till an animal's four and a half five and a half years old but if you want to shoot a buck that has a large uh, large antlers, and is close to its potential of what it could be in its life, um, you know, you've got to let those animals age. And, you know, they start reaching, you know, kind of close to their maximum once they're four and a half and older. So okay. somewhere between four and a half and maybe seven, eight and a half year, right. years old. Okay. So that's that's an older deer. And, you know, if someone is is harvesting all of the bucks at age two, they're just not going to see those those larger antler deer, you know, or 
maybe just occasionally one will slip through. But yeah, um, and you have. We talked about being realistic about you know what you have and your resources. If you have fifty acres and you, you're not controlling what's going on in that deer's life mm-hmm. because it's spending a lot of time off your property, right? Your neighbors, if they're not on board, if they're not on the same <laughs> yeah. plan as you, then it's going to be really hard for you to consistently see and harvest older bucks mm-hmm. if they're not kind of on the same game plan as you so that's something to think about is to talk to your neighbors and if you can get in a deer cooperative that you can cooperatively manage that's going to help a lot that's what my husband said this morning when we were discussing this he said something about well you could manage a deer for a couple years and see the same thing i'm same one over and over again and then your neighbor shoots it (laughs) when it is in prime time which i think happens a lot and um is reality of the situation Mm-hmm. And that's part of hunting, I yeah, guess, yeah. right? If you have a small land area. But I, I think that that's so interesting. I read that, worked, worked through that fact sheet this morning and, and said 90% of the potential by the time they're five, four and a half, five years of age. I mean, it becomes a diminishing return right. at some mm-hmm. point. You know, like yeah. the difference between a six and a seven-year-old deer is much smaller typically than the difference from a two and a three year. Okay. I mean, they're, they're, you know, their antler size is growing by leaps uh-huh. and bounds during those first few years. And then it becomes kind of small gains. And eventually at some point, you know, depending on the deer, but probably around eight, nine, 10 mm-hmm. years old, they start declining if they've, right. if they've been lucky to survive that long, which very few do survive to that age. Yeah. That's rare. That I would, I would think so. Okay, so this is just me being naive. So I just think it's very fascinating that the deer lose their antlers every year mm-hmm. and then grow them back yeah. bigger, most, yeah. you know, until they get their mature size. Yeah. That's it's just miraculous. so interesting. Isn't that just wild? Yeah. Okay, I yeah. just think I mean, that that's so cool. It's one of the cool. fastest growing animal tissues in the world. I mean, it, it's really remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you watch like a time lapse of a deer in captivity over the summer, I mean... You can almost see the antler growth. That's I mean, it's remarkable how quickly it grows. And you can imagine their nutritional needs during that time are huge. I would think so. Yeah. That is the most nutritionally demanding time in a buck's life is when it's growing antlers. So okay. if you're planting food plots, that's something to think about. Like <laughs> uh-huh. how much food does an animal does this animal have during May and June when it's growing these antlers? And similar with does that are lactating. Okay fawns often Mm -hmm. two fawns at once their nutritional demand is huge during may and june when they're having to nurse uh, these fawns yeah so we say for cattle it's like double triple the amount of energy during lactation so i would say it was a similar i mean they they almost eat constantly i would say they can't hardly consume enough yeah i think i think of a deer as a small animal and then if she has two babies like that's yeah i would think and sometimes three sometimes three Mm mm-hmm now, how often does that happen? It's rare. Okay. Yeah. And, and some of it, a lot of it is nutrition. Like if right. you if you see, uh, lot, you know, animals that have two and three, they're, they, they had a lot more food resources typically. And there's some genetic relationship right. as well, but a lot of that's nutrition. Okay. And that's what you say. It's more about the nutrition <clears throat> um, for larger, any larger deer. You know, more about the yeah. nutrition than genetics. Yeah. And as far as the antlers go, nutrition and age. Okay. And genetics is, I'm not saying genetics doesn't matter. Right. But we just can't really control it very well mm-hmm. in an open population. When I say open population, I mean deer that have free access to the landscape. Now, if you put them in captivity. Okay. You can control genetics. Yeah. But, 
I mean, the thing about it, like a cattle herd, mm-hmm. a closed herd versus, I mean, if you just let your, your cattle mix across the landscape, right? would any livestock producer worry about their genetic line? Of course they so. wouldn't because their neighbors- <laughs> You have no cattle, control. You yeah. have no control. Well, that's what most people are dealing with. So this idea yeah. of culling animals or selectively harvesting to favor certain genetic characteristics, even if we were naive enough to think that we can- see that see those genetic characteristics we we really don't have much control over it right. so it's not something that the average landowner should be focused on they need okay. to focus on the age of the animal and the nutrition that that animal's getting okay very good such good information Dwayne. Yeah. any any final thoughts oh I'd it's just, just a big thing it's yeah just there's a, big... a lot i'd say just you know uh take baby steps and you know, connect with somebody, a resource professional that can help you meet your goals on your property. I would think some of our extension educators probably are interested, equally interested in the wildlife portion. At least I know several of them. And so they'd be helpful in getting in contact with you or or kind of a go-between. Especially, you know, if you're thinking about food plots and you need soil samples and things like that, I mean, absolutely reach out to your county extension educator. Thank you, Dwayne for letting me Thank come and, and talk to you about this and, and understanding my lack of it, knowledge oh, no. for deer. And Great questions. Yeah. Thank you. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this segment. All the links that we've talked about today and, and quite a few more fact sheets we'll have listed in the show notes. Thank you for joining us and we hope you join us in the next couple of weeks. 